Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and discuss it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. We're currently reading Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm. Today we're going to discuss sections 4.16, 4.17, and 4.18, which cover handling special cases with guard clauses, representing special cases as objects, and representing do-nothing cases as null objects. And remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club and check out rubybookclub.com to follow along. So what did you think of these three sections, Nadia? I really liked them. Um, the first two in particular were things that I've done a lot of with Theo on recent projects, and so it was really cool to see the breakdown like this, um, see Avdi's approach, think about how I'd approached it in my own code, and think about potential improvements. Yeah, same. I thought these three sections were very familiar too. Um, and, and it was very refreshing and honestly very validating. I feel like I, I knew something, <laughs> which is always nice. It's always a good feeling. And especially the guard clause, which we'll talk about too. It made me feel good because that's something that I've done and I, I wasn't sure if that was the right way to do it. And so again, just very validating to feel like I, I know some stuff. Yes. And so I just want to start by reading the first paragraph of the guard clause section because I quite like the idea that it brought out. Um, and it's an excerpt from Jay Field's book, Refactoring. Uh, and I think it's Refactoring Ruby, people tend to refer to it as. And it says, mm -hmm. if you were using an if-then-else construct, you were giving equal weight to the if leg and the else leg. This communicates to the reader that the legs are equally likely and important. Instead, the guard clause says, this is rare, and if it happens, do something and get out. I'm so glad you read that. I loved that paragraph so much because it articulated the discomfort I felt a lot of times when I'll use the if-else because I'm thinking, ah, but that else only happens once in a thousand entries. Like, you know, it, is, it frustrates me, and this just put it into words so beautifully. I, I felt the same because with the if-else thing, you suddenly go from one line of code to seven, and you're like, why? This is a silly little <laughs> right. case. Yeah, exactly. And it also comes with a sense of urgency, right? If this weird, strange, rare thing happens do the thing and then just get out, get out. You got to go. Right. And so often when I've done so say I've been coding with you and I'll sort of drive for a bit, I'll say, oh, we need to handle this case. And so I'll reach for a conditional less so now. This was some months ago. And then Theo will go, but if this thing happens, do we want to get to line 18 or, and then I go, oh no, mm. no, we want to get rid of, we want to know about it early on and deal with it. And so, yeah, it that's exactly part of what Jay Fields is yeah. trying to get out in that paragraph. Mm -hmm. And then a little bit later when Avdi talks about the rationale, he talks about how we don't want to be distracted, mm. right? Besides kind of giving it equal weight and making it just visually look like it's a common thing, we also, we don't want to get distracted by these rare special cases. We want to focus our code and focus our lines of code and our attention on the good stuff and the meat of our of what we're doing. Right. Um, exactly. So in this example, Avdi talks about adding a quiet mode to a flag. So he refers to the early example of log reading in another chapter. And he says, okay, we've got this method called log reading and we pass it some readings. These are an array. And for each one, we print it out with the reading prefix and then a timestamp. 
one day we say, mm, sometimes I don't want to have all these logs. I just want the code to run quietly. And so therefore we need to be able to set this quiet flag. And the first iteration of the code is we have this instance variable quiet and the method log reading now starts with unless quiet before going on to the pre to the rest of the, the meat of the method. So just to add this quiet flag, we now start the whole method with unless quiet. So unless you set quiet, go ahead and behave as normal. Mm-hmm. And as Avdi says, this is not awful code, but we've just added a whole level of conditional nesting for this one case, which we 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 probably don't want to run most of the time. And the whole meat of the method, which is log reading, is now wrapped under this unless quiet line. And so that doesn't seem quite right. The balance seems wrong. And so this is where we introduce guard clauses. Yes, and before we even get to that, the other thing that I really liked about the way that we got to this problem and the way we're going to solve it is that we are... We, we came to the problem after some time using this method, right? It wasn't kind of, we weren't, we're not starting from scratch. We're starting with a code base that we already had. And it says one day, maybe weeks, maybe months after, we decide we want to add this new thing. So I just really appreciate that this is a real life scenario where a lot of times we're inheriting code or we're just working with a code base that we've built, you know, over the last year or two. And so even in these situations when we're inheriting code, we can still make modifications and make improvements and we don't always have to start from scratch. So I just really appreciated the the setup of this problem. And so how we use the guard clause in this case is rather than unless quiet and then indenting the meat of the method onto that conditional, we change that line to return if quiet. And then the rest of the method is on the same indentation level as that guard clause. So now Mm -hmm. um, it's a short line which explicitly shows the intent, which is if the quiet flag is set, just return, just exit, don't do anything else. Otherwise, here's the rest of the stuff. And it's not because... Yeah. Because often with conditionals, the problem is, although that one was very simple, you've got to keep context in your head when you're reading it. So before you're like, okay, unless quiet, do this. And you've got that extra layer of cognitive load that you need to think about whereas now it's like return if quiet okay we haven't returned let's go on and so the meat of the method is now at the level that befits its status which is i am this bit of code is what the method is here for mm-hmm. exactly and to me it's so interesting that at this point we're really talking about the visual representation of our code Right. Even what you said, the fact that the meat of the method isn't nested in something else, which implies to a degree some type of hierarchy. Right. It kind of makes it just visually look like it's a subset of something by putting it by putting that return if quiet right up top. We've leveled things up a little bit. We've made it just as important, just simply on an indentation level. And then the second visual cue is the location. The fact that return if quiet is the very, very first thing right under the name of the method, that tells us that it is, it's highly important, right? It's something that we need to call attention to. But the fact that it's not wrapping it says it's important, but it's not what we're here for. And I just find it so, you're coming from more of a 
like a design, artistic, creative perspective. I just love that the problem we're solving for is more about visual communication than it is the code being quote unquote right. Yeah, I love the way that you expressed that. Yeah, that was great. And then he takes that a step further by saying that we can put return if at quiet, but a different thing that we could do is say if at quiet, then return end. So he makes it just a little bit longer. Right, and it's just essentially um, drawing out that conditional into one line, and he just prefers the former example, I guess, as being more expressive, and I think I prefer it too. No, I know I prefer it too. Right, and just the fact that return is that first word. And this is one of the moments where I looked at that and I said, okay, so it is okay that I'm doing that. Because every time I put an explicit return Mm -hmm. that way, I always feel, and it's usually for this type of problem that I'm solving, I always feel bad. I always feel like, I really shouldn't be doing it this way. So it was nice to know that the way I've been thinking about it is the way that Avdi was thinking about it. Exactly. And Avdi wraps up this section nicely by basically saying, I, an early return is actually quite surprising. It makes someone take note when they're reading the code. And it's your way of saying, warning, this method may return early. Read on for circumstances under which that's going to happen. It also means that the special cases are not elevated unnecessarily and dominating the entire method. Mm-hmm. And that basically sums up for point 0.16. That was a nice, concise little chapter. Yeah, cute little chapter. So next, let's do 4.17, which is represent special cases as objects. So the indication for this chapter is that you have a special case that has to be taken into account in different parts of the program. And the example given is a web application that may need to behave differently if the current user is not logged in. And that is such a common problem that I think a lot of us face, right? What do we do when we don't have a current user, but a lot of our logic requires that we have some type of a current user and relies very heavily on that. So I'm really glad that he used a very common use case like that to show us about special cases as objects. Yeah, and he brings up this idea of polymorphism again. And this came up in episode five, and there's a blog post on the show notes for that. And just a brief summary of polymorphism is sending the same message to different objects and getting different results. And so Avdi says polymorphism is what's going to help us here so that we handle the special case correctly when we come across it. Mm -hmm. And so he walks us through the current user method, which if you're a Um, a web developer, you've probably used the current user method a bunch too. And in this case, we're just finding the user based on the session user ID. And we use that current user for a lot of different stuff. We might want to get the current user's name. We might want to get the current user's avatar. We might want to ask the current user for a list of its most recent tweets if we're doing like a Twitter clone Mm -hmm. type thing. So that is a very, very important method that we want to be able to deal with very well. Right. And so there are some cases where if we have a user that's not logged in, some of that stuff is going to blow up or it won't work. And we don't want to be returning a user object or a nil. We want something else. And so this is where he introduces an idea of a guest user class. And like you say, this example is great because it's a very common one. And in fact, in one of the last projects I was working with, with Theo, we did exactly this. Um, we had our guest user class with the interface the same as user. Um, and so, and as we'll see later on in the terms of how Avdi deals with the specs, 
Sophia and I had handled that in the same way. So it was really cool to read a book and see like exactly the way you'd handled something. It was being, you know, taught to to the readers. Um, So that was cool. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And what I liked about it is it, before we even get to the, the guest user class and what that looks like, he goes through very specific examples. I think all of them we can all probably relate to. So the first one is defining a method called greeting, where we want to say, you know, welcome, Bob. You know, welcome, how are you today? And the Bob is going to be based on the current user's name. So if you don't have a current user, then what do you do if you don't have someone signed in? Another one is picking what path to go down, right? If you're logged in, then you want to log out. If you're not logged in, then you want to be able to have a button that says log in. So again, you know, different paths and very much dependent on whether or not we have a current user. And the last one, which I think is also very common is the role, right? A lot of times, how many times have we done the current user and current user.admin, right? Making sure it exists and making sure that they have the right role. And so these are all just very common things that we've probably done and we've seen. And through these guest user object, we're able to deal with all of them yeah and yeah and there are a few others um around modifying things on the current user as well which if we don't have a user object how do we handle those cases mm-hmm. yep exactly uh so now we have this guest user class and it has an initialized method and it takes a session which is set to session instance variable and what we do is we rewrite the current user method to return a new guest user if no user ID is found on the session object. And so then what we need to do is we need to match a lot of the attributes that we already have in our original user. So the idea behind this is we want to be able to treat the guest user the same way. And so one of the first things that we'll do to accommodate that greeting method that we talked about that said, hello, Bob, how are you today? That greeting method relies on the current user having a name. So our current user needs to have a name, which means that our guest user needs to have a name. So the first thing that we'll do is create a method called name and we'll return, in this case, we're returning something that is a string that says anonymous. You might want to do a string that says guest or new user or or something like that. Yes, exactly. And so then we can go back to our greeting code and just safely say, hello, current user.name. Um, we don't have to have a, a, a different path in case the current user doesn't have a name. Exactly. So it's nice and clean. It's just that one line and you can safely assume that whatever the current user is, it has a name. And then the next one is the one where that you spoke about, Saron, where depending on whether you're logged in or logged out, depends whether you see a login or a logout button. And Avdi says, we can't get rid of this conditional, but we can add an authenticated method to both the user and the guest user. And so on class user, def authenticated with a question mark returns true. And on the guest user, def authenticated returns false. And so now, therefore, in in that snippet of code, we can just say, if the current user is authenticated, render the logout button, else render the login button. So we still have the the same structure, but now um, it reads better because we understand yes. the toggle upon which, we, depending on which button we're going to show. 
So this is fundamentally different from the way we're thinking about that greeting method because originally when we were describing these two paths, it was if we have a current user, do this, otherwise do this other thing. In the way this is structured, we're saying we know we have a current user, but is the current user authenticated? So as you said, that toggle point is around the authentication of the current user, not on the existence of the current user. And so that requires that both the user and the guest user class have a method called authenticated. And that's new, right? We didn't have an authenticated method before. So in user, as you said, authenticated returns true and guest user authenticated returns false. And now we have honestly a more honest representation of what's going on because whether we have a guest or a signed in user we do have a current user either way right then the next case looks at this idea of the special privileges and as you said we're always doing that are you an admin or not and with our guest user we define the method has role and we just set that to return false for any role because mm -hmm. <laughs> you're not logged in, you're anonymous, you have no special privileges. Mm -hmm. So this now means that when we go back to the role checking code, again, it's very simple because we just say, if the current user has the admin role, render the admin panel. Before we had to say, if we have a current user object and that current user has a role admin, then render the admin panel. So, so again, having the has role method on the guest user simplifies our code. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one's a pretty easy one, and it looks nice and clean when we implement it, too. And so the next one that we have is looking at something that a current user has. So in this example, we're talking about visible listings. Mm -hmm. And so how do we get a current user's visible listings? So we want to just ask the current user, hey, do you have visible listings? And in order for that to work with our new guest user object, we have to define a method called visible listings. And here, we're just going to return listing dot publicly visible. So just getting a general list of what type of, a general list of listings of things <laughs> that are publicly visible to all. So again, we have that method now that both a uh, authenticated current user and an anonymous current user can both respond to. Yes. Yeah, so before we had to say, if the current user has visible listings, show those, otherwise show the publicly visible ones. But now it's just all wrapped up in that interface, as you said. And so then the last, the one other type of example that Avdi went through was this idea of um, setting methods on or modifying um, attributes on a user. And so he had this idea of changing the last seen online time for a user to be the current time. And what Avdi recommends with the guest user is for stuff like this, just set these sorts of methods as no-ups because there's no object that we're, state that we're trying to save. And so as an example, he says on the guest user class, say you've got a method that says last seen online, just, he's just put the comment in there, no up. So it does nothing. But now you don't have that conditional anymore like you had before. Whereas before you had to say, I've got the current user, then set last seen online, otherwise do nothing. Now you can just say current user dot last seen online equals time dot now. And if you have a, a, an authentic, a proper user, a logged in user, then that will get updated. But with a guest user, nothing will happen, but you don't need to know about it. So what does no op mean? It means no operation, I think. Ah. <laughs> and so nothing <laughs> will be done. That makes sense. Nothing yeah. will happen. Got it. Okay, cool. 
And so for that last case, what we're doing is we are getting the cart. So I'm going to go ahead and I think safely assume that we're talking about a shopping cart. And this is probably in the context of an online store. And so here we want to be able to get that cart and we want to be able to add items to that cart, right? So if anonymous not signed in person is shopping, they still want to be able to add books to that cart so that when they're ready, they can sign in and make that purchase. And so in order for that to happen, we have to create a method called cart in our guest user, and that would create a new session cart. And that session cart would then have to respond to something called add item. So we can treat it just like any old cart if the guest was already signed in. Right. And so once again, it's fitting in with that theme of how can we not have to care, not have to be confident that we have some form of current user object that's going to respond to methods in a way that makes sense, depending on what type of current user that is. And Avdi sort of finishes off by showing us the guest user class in its entirety. And so, you know, we've got the name set to anonymous, authenticated set to false, has role set to false visible listings just being the general public one and attribute setters as no ops and then the session cart one and then this is this is a bit that I really like where Avdi takes a step back and he goes okay I've just done this great big refactor mm-hmm. but you might be thinking this part of the book is all about handling input collecting input we've just done this major refactoring this is a bit this is a big step, isn't it? Why mm-hmm. Why have we done this? And I love that he's trying to give further context to this example. Because sometimes in books, you can struggle to think of the real world application, but after he just does this great job of trying to think about how you're responding to what you're reading and what likely scenarios are. And so it's great that he's taken the step back and said, hold on, I know you might be thinking that was a bit crazy. And so this is where he says that method construction and object design are not two independent things. They actually interweave and work together like a dance. And so that's why, yes, we may have been looking at method construction, but that can push up and inform how an object is designed. Yes, and I love that too, because yeah, those two things go hand in hand and it's not either or. And in this situation, we we tried to start <laughs> at the method level, but it got pushed up and the way that we originally constructed things made it a little bit harder and we noticed certain things that we decided to move out of just the method. So in a sense, it was out of necessity. Mm-hmm. And so then after he says, well, you know, changes like this don't have to be made all at once and you might go about it incrementally. And so he goes right back to the beginning of the example and says, if we were doing this step by step, what would that look like? Hmm. Yeah, I love this because I was thinking by the time we got through it, I said, man, this is great, but this took some time. <laughs> you know, if I was doing this in a real code base, it would take a little bit of time. And so instead of doing that nice big upfront refactor, in a sense, he gives us an example of what a smaller introduction to that refactor would look like in our very first method that we optimize, which is the greeting method. And so here we have our user variable and it's set to current user or guest user dot new. So we're introducing this idea of a guest user within our method. So at this point, it's really only that greeting method that knows about this idea of a guest user. And so from there, 
uh, it's, it's adorable the way he puts it. He calls it sprouting a class, or I'm sorry, Michael Feathers calls it sprouting a class, which is just a, a adorable way of thinking about it. Right? You have your one little seed, you get you get some leaves. I don't know how plants work. Mm-hmm. And then once <laughs> once it's you know proven itself, then we take it to a different place. So really like that introductory first step that makes it I think a lot more accessible to people who might be a little bit intimidated by that big refactor that we just did yeah and that sprouting a class term comes from Michael Feather's book working effectively with legacy code and that's a book it's meant to be a great read it's been cropping up over the years as a recommendation for me so one that that I should definitely get onto at some point nice and yeah and Avdi's way of putting it is also that it's a pilot program, which mm-hmm. I really like too, right? So it's yeah. we're just testing it out, hoping it works, see how we feel about it, and then if it works, then we'll we'll put it in other places and really make use of it. Right, and so Avdi says you can continue on in this vein, doing bit by bits of incorporating the guest user class, and at some point you might say, okay, this works now, I'm going to extract this into another class. But then Avdi says, you know, it's all been very nice so far, but there is a drawback with a special case. And that is, if it's going to work seamlessly with the normal case, we need to keep the two interfaces in sync. How can you keep track of all the methods that you need from your normal user to a guest user? Yeah, and I I love that he brought this up because it's one of the things that I immediately think of when I was thinking about this pattern and using this as a solution was, man, okay, I got to make sure that I remember every single method that I have to respond to. So I'm really glad that he brings that up himself and and has a a solution for it. So one of the things that he talks about is using shared examples in your specs. And basically, in that shared examples for a user, you tell it what it should respond to and what methods it should have. So there's a a nice long list that says that a user should respond to name, authenticated, has role, visible listings, last seen online, and cart, which are the methods that we discussed. And so in our tests, we would test for the guest user object and say that this should behave like a user. And then we have a same test for our user that says this should also behave like a user. And so in that way, we can keep the the expectations for how things should react and, and what they should have in one place and make sure that both our guest user and our regular user respond to those things. That's perfect. All that's left is to wrap up on this chapter. Avdi says, when we have this special case and you need to include it at many points in a program, you don't want to keep repeating checks for nil. It's often a sign that you need a special case object And so we want to isolate those differences by having this class. And this is where polymorphism helps because it ensures that whether you've got uh, uh, um, the normal case or a special case, the right code is going to get executed. Yeah, that was great. And that is the end of 4.16. We got one section left. You ready? Let's roll on. So now we are on 4.18, where we're talking about representing do-nothing cases as null objects. So when we were talking about 4.17, I looked at that and I said to myself, this feels very, 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 very similar Mm -hmm. to null objects. Mm -hmm. And I was so happy that this section came right after it because I said, oh, there's a, a difference and there's a specific purpose for the null object that I didn't appreciate until being forced to see them side by side. Yes, and so 
Afti says, now we're talking about a special case where you want to do nothing. So right. you don't, you want to ignore any input. You want to forego any interaction. You just want to do nothing. And so rather than having nil, we're going to replace nil with a special null object collaborator object. And the null object is, an, is a noun in that the N and the O are capitalized. Um, it's a specific type of object. And it's going to respond to messages by taking no action. And that to me is very, very crucial because when I originally heard of null object pattern, I assumed the null was referring to not having the object and having to work around not having the original object. Do you know what I mean? So for example, with the guest user example that we did, I assumed it was, we don't have a quote unquote, a real current user. So we have to have a guest. We have to have the stand-in. So the null object being the guest as a stand-in for the real current user. But really what it's talking about and what it's defining is the fact that we want nothing to happen and we want it to just not do anything. And so Avdi has another example in here and he's talking about logging shell commands. And he's considering a library that works with FFmpeg, which is a library that I've actually worked a lot with in the last six months. And so again, it was more familiarity, which was cool. And it's essentially a powerful way to manipulate audio and video files. And so Avdi has this method where you record a screen with a file name and it's all very complex and there's lots of uh, complex manipulation of strings going on in order to output certain commands. So we want to log all that it's doing. It's rather complex, but we can only write to the log if a logger is defined. And Avdi says it's going to be very cluttered. If every time we want to write to the log, we have to check that there is a log. And there could be many different types of logs. And the interesting thing about the problem you just outlined is the kind of the human problem, right? If something is hard to do or just takes a huge effort to do, then we're less likely to do it. So one of the other problems he states, besides the repetition of constantly having to check if there is a logger, is he says, we may begin to slack off. You know, as developers, mm. we're retired, we may not add all those logging statements that we should have because it just takes time to figure out what we need to do uh, to have to do it each time. So that's another kind of a, a more human and more empathetic reason to maybe approach this problem a little bit differently. And he says, of all the different variations of loggers that you could have, one is a nil logger, so one where you don't want it to do anything. And here Avdi refers to the previous chapter and says, well, this is a special case of that special case. Um, and so we can imagine a class null logger, which has the same interface as all the other types of loggers that we tend to know, which is a debug method, an info method, a warn method, an error method, a fatal method. And we would have these empty. So you just define the class and you'd have these methods specified, but there'd be nothing in the body of these methods. So now you can go back to your FFmpeg class. You can initialize it with a null logger and rather than doing any checks on whether you have a logger or not, you would just execute the code as normal. And if the, if the null logger is set, then you won't get any logs. Mm -hmm. And this to me is interesting because it was um, an idea that came up a couple sections ago of wanting our code to do nothing, which is just, it's so strange to me because 
I'm used to thinking of code as doing stuff. And even when we were passing in the value false, I think it was also a logger that we were talking about, this idea that sometimes we want to silence things and we want to have options to not do certain things. And so we're not just turning things on, we're turning things off. And so that just conceptually was, was just a very interesting idea. Yeah, and, and this is where uh, Avdi says that this, is, this has got a name. This is the null object pattern. And a null object conforms to the interface required of the object reference, implementing all of its methods to do nothing or return suitable default values. And he says that's from a paper called Null Object Something for Nothing by Kevlin Henney. And this is also reminding me of Sandy Metz's talk. Yep, I had the same reaction. <laughs> yep, nothing is something. And so we'll put a link to that in the show notes so you guys can go watch it because it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So when we are creating our initial null logger, one of the things that we'll find is we'll have a bunch of different empty methods. And that to me has been the the gross part of <laughs> doing it this way is just having all these empty methods. It just doesn't feel quite right. And so one thing that we can do to avoid that is we can create a new null object and in there we can have a method missing method. And so in that sense, we don't have to call out every single method and just have a bunch of empty methods. We can just have one place and that'll be the place where all the methods get caught in a sense. Yeah, and this null object that Avdi creates inherits from basic object. And so this means that, and this is referencing Ruby 1.9.3, so that's quite a long time ago, and I'm not sure how much basic object has changed. But then that defined only eight methods. So that meant that any other method you'd call is likely hit that no op method missing um, method. And then the second thing that, the second method defined in this new generic null object is the respond to method where we just return true no matter what that method is and I love this little bit here where Avdi says since this object will in fact respond to any message it's only polite to say so and asked. <laughs> of course I love that too and from my understanding that respond to makes sense because we have that method missing. Yes. So those two go hand in hand. Yes. And so Avdi says, this is all very nice. It's worked for our logger examples, but let's look at a different example. And so he introduces a method that makes HTTP requests and collects metrics as it does so. So we have a method called send request. It takes an HTTP object, um, a request and a metrics variable. And what it does is it increments this object called metrics.requests.attempted. It increments metrics.requests.successful after it's got a response. And depending on the response code, it, int- it increments the relevant metrics.responses.code. And so there are lots of little things that are being changed. If you get a socket error, metrics.errors.socket is incremented, and there are a couple of others too. And so Avdi says, okay, this is a contrived example, but this metrics object is obviously deeply nested because it's being chained to a few methods. So the metrics object gets errors. And then in the case of the socket error one, for example, it then receives the socket method. That then receives the plus one method. That then receives an equals method. And so what Avdi says here is, what if we don't want to collect metrics? What if we just have a special mode where um, we're not worrying about collecting these things? We might want to do a null object pattern in that case. 
But the problem comes when the way we've defined null object previously, we're just going to get a no op and so it's going to return nil. But calling a method on nil is going to blow up. Right. And so in the way that we initially implemented it, we can really only call one method. And that's it, right? Because as soon as we do that, then it'll be nil. And then if we call a method on nil, then it'll blow up. So what happens when you have to chain a bunch of stuff? And so for that, it was a very, to me, a very interesting solution where instead of it being an empty method, our method missing returns self, which felt to me very dangerous. <laughs> and he kind of goes on a little bit to talk about how that can be a little bit dangerous. So if you return self and you call another method, then you just, no matter what you do, you just keep returning yourself. And so that makes it a lot easier to deal with in the context that we talked about with the send request method, because there's all these things calling on all these other things, depending on where you are. So you really don't have to worry about the, you know, the no method error blowing up at any point. But in doing that, you end up with something called infinite depth, where no matter how many methods you continue to chain onto it, you, the only thing that happens is you return yourself. And he describes this as the object acting infectiously, which was very, very interesting, where because all these different methods and potentially many different places are relying on it, the null object-ness, the, the do-nothing-ness is being spread to all these places that maybe you didn't intend to bring it. Avdi then explains how this black hole pattern can become dangerous. He introduces a create widget method, which takes some attributes and also a data store, which can be nil. If that data store is nil, then it defaults to a null object. And then to store a new widget, we call store on the data store with the widget as an argument. And then Avdi says that we make the assumption that the client code keeps a reference to that widget based on the return value of store, of create widget, of which calling store is the last thing that happens. So let's take the case where the data store happens to be nil. That means we're going to get a null object for the data store. And then when we call data store.store widget, that's also going to return a null object. But because the client code takes the return object of create widget to ref to, as a reference to the stored object, we've actually unknowingly got a null object as our widget. And so later on in the code, where we check certain attributes on the widget, for example, like widget.manifest, we're going to have trouble because manifest is also just going to now return a null object. And so we're going to get into a, a weird chain where... We're asking things of the widget object and chaining methods and we're just getting these null objects back and we don't know it. Yeah, and the other thing he brings up is that not only do you not realize what you've done, but you may not realize where it came from. So in this situation, we've kind of traveled from one section to another and all these methods have called on these other methods and now you're in the manifest side of things. And if you had to trace that back and figure out, well, where was the root of this problem? And especially if you're not the one who wrote in that null object pattern, that might be very difficult to figure out and to find the root cause to then correct it. Yeah. And so Avdi says that we really need to be careful when we're thinking about these, this black hole pattern where you just keep returning a null object. And he refers to this object neighborhood again and says, 
we must ensure that a black hole never leaks out of an object's library or an object's neighborhood. And so we really have to think about the borders of the code and what, what the likelihood of how far this black hole could extend. And if we think it's pretty safe, then we might consider it, but really we should be careful. And it might be that part of the API is that we return the null object, but we convert that to nil before we return it because you ideally don't want a null object anywhere because that can be dangerous. And so we go back to our favorite thing, conversion functions. Mm-hmm. And Avdi defines a conversion function called actual. So capital A, and it takes an object and it says case object. When null object, then nil, else object. So now if we wrap in something like a user, a user.new in the actual conversion function, we get that, that user back again. If we wrap nil up in that actual um, conversion function, we get nil. And if we wrap a null object in the actual conversion function, we get nil. So this means that we don't get into the black hole thing that that was displayed in the create widget example, because as soon as manifest or any other method is called on widget, it's going to blow up because it will say undefined method manifest for nil class. And so this is the part that I want to make sure I understand, because when I saw this, I thought, okay, so when do we get to leverage this null object pattern and when do we need to tell the rest of our code base just kidding there is no real object here please just just use nil we were joking so my understanding of it and i'd love to kind of make sure i I have a good hold on this my understanding of it is when we are within our own api so we're when we're in our own neighborhood i guess maybe is one way to put it and we're moving things around and we want to um, you know, modify stuff and, and, and all that, we're safe to be in our black hole situation because we're still in our neighborhood and we know what's going on. But in this case where we're doing the create widget and that's an API that some other code base has to use and we know that's one of our, our it's part of our API, right? So it's one mm-hmm. of our endpoints. At that point, that's the border of our coding land, of our territory. And that is where that conversion function needs to happen so it's okay if we're kind of passing ourselves you know around and we're moving around the null object but when we're showing it to the country next door Mm -hmm. we need to make sure that they're clear about what they're getting is that how you understood it yes similar so definitely if it's a an api that other people are going to use then you you want to be returning nil so that it blows up straight away if they're trying to talk to things that could potentially be null objects And I also think that it's still important to think about it within your own code because you could still find yourself in a mess, but we're in safer territory because we sort of, we we control the area a bit more. We can, we know how we're using our own API. And so we are less likely to fall into that trap, but it's still possible. Um, And there might be context switching on a team that, that even within a team, so you might work on something one day and then someone else comes onto it. So you still need to be careful, but you can be, you can have a bit more confidence that you you can keep any leaks under control. Yeah, that's one thing that I, I would have loved to have seen just a few more examples, just so I can have a better sense of what constitutes a leak and what is acceptable. Because in the public API, that's a, a pretty clear line, but I'm sure there's places even within my own API that I want to be clear about what I have and other times where it's very helpful to use the null object object. And so just having a couple more examples of where that line is is something that I'd I'd love to see. And then 
In the next section, Avdi says, so you might be thinking, hmm, this null object is very similar to nil class. And he works through an example where he says, well, okay, we can define an interface that pretty much makes our null object behave like a nil class. So we can find a, define a method called nil question mark and set that return true to return true. We can also set a method uh, bang and set that to return true. So this means now that when we call nil on null, we'll get true just like we would do on nil class. And when we call bang bang on null, so two exclamation marks, and then a variable null, which is essentially a null, a new null object, then we get false. So just like with a nil class, it converts it to a Boolean, the double negation. But then we have this ultimate test, which is how does it behave in conditionals? And we have this ternary operator where we say null, and if, if null, truthy or falsy, and null evaluates to truthy. And this is where you see the difference between null object and null class. Because in that case, the nil class would have returned falsy. However, the way Ruby works, we can't define our own falsy objects. There's no way to do that. And so as hard as you try, your null object will always be a bit different to, to, nil, to nil class. Yeah, exactly. And because it, it can't really mimic a lot of the stuff that you might be tempted to mimic as a nil class, uh, Avdi basically says, just be yourself. You're a null object. That's okay. And so he recommends not trying to go down the nil class road. Um, and you can't inherit from nil class either. So you, you really just need to be happy with who you are. <laughs> I love it. And so, yeah, he says, you know, use the special objects with those do nothing cases. We can clean up our code and Ruby, you know, gives us the tools that enable us to write such objects that can mimic specific interfaces. Um, and then it's like another reminder, which is just remember though, null is very different to nil and don't try and uh, copy that because, you know, it ends on a rather ominous tone. It's a dead end. <laughs> no, that sounded so sad. So I think we can wrap up the show. Yeah, I think that's about it. So we want to know, have you ever implemented special case objects or null objects? If so, we'd love to hear your story of how you did it and what roadblocks maybe you ran into, what successes you had. So you can record your 30-second response and send it to us at hello at rubybookclub.com and you might hear yourself on the show. And don't forget to tweet us at Ruby Book Club and tell us about how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio. Yes, Cheerio's back. <laughs> <laughs>